talking Dice Masters, the beauty of the underlying mechanics, the hidden complexities, and the strategy, tactics, and decisions of competitive play. If you're just starting the game or have been here since the first set, hopefully you'll find something in this show that'll do you some good. So shake up your bag, reconnoiter your opponent, and get ready to roll. All right, Luke, and let's round up the posse and kick this one up to top gear. John DeGeehill. I'm on it. Today we've got a deep one in store for everyone, but before we venture out of the shallow end, let's talk about the release schedule. With the spoilers that we've seen recently from DM Armada and Tom Vassell, we've been hoping that D&D Waterdeep and the WWE set might be dropping in the next few weeks. But I just glanced at the solicits page and it looks like it's been pushed back to December. How are you feeling about that? Talk about how it's been a while since we've had a new product and you're looking forward to playing something new. I can't say I'm surprised, though. Yeah, the fact that this game of ours has so many IPs is really a blessing and a curse at times. I mean, on the one hand, we get so much fresh and interesting product, but on the other hand, legal complications and licensing issues can sometimes cause delays or even nixed releases, which leads to periods of product draught followed by periods of deluge. And I think we might be headed for a deluge soon enough. And in the best of all worlds, we'd get a steady, even stream of product. But to be honest, I'm just eager to put some new cards on the table. Turn on the faucet as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, the last time we had something like this was when Guardians and X-Men First Class were dropped relatively close together. The downside to that was that I always felt that Guardians didn't get its fair due. I really liked drafting that set, and it seemed like it got pushed to the side a little bit too soon. Yeah, I feel you there. That was a really fun set to draft. A Johnny's Delight, you might say. But you'll be happy to know that the Spider-Man team-up campaign box in the Spider-Verse team pack is back on the page, so maybe the fact that Sony and Marvel have come to some agreement has led to some good news for us. That is good news. And in the meantime, we've got a big event going on, Trasnendolanta. I'm assuming you're talking about the WizKids European Open? Indeed I am. Being hosted by one of the true supporters of the game, Mr. Peter Cernak at the Iriesco Game Store in Bratislava, Slovakia. The event is happening from the 22nd to the 24th of November, and it's only a 60-kilometer drive from the Vienna airport. So if you're in Europe and you can make it, I'm certain it's going to be a top-notch event. As for the formats, they're running Popper on November 22nd at 6 p.m. to allow for travel time, Global Escalation on the 23rd at 4 p.m., and 10 by 10 on the 24th at 11 a.m. Yeah, the main event kicks off on the 23rd as well at 9 a.m., and they're planning on doing a bunch of rainbow drafting as well. I'll throw a link in the show notes to the page with all the details at... RollinThunder.xyz forward slash 203 for season 2, episode 3, no apostrophe, no G. (laughs) I like the Z in honor of our European pals, Arlar. All right, it's time to get down to business. Are you ready for this, Lucan? Tamere. All right, joining us tonight on the show is a player whose achievements and contributions cover all four quadrants of the Dice Master universe. A contributor to the reserve pool, a host on the attack zone, an author of many an article back in the days of the reserve pool, and now a member of the Gaming with Sidekicks crew bringing you articles and podcasts. But that's not all. A finalist and winner of several WKOs, the 2015 Canadian National Champion, the 2016 United States National Champion, 
a quarterfinalist in the 2017 World Championships, and a top four finisher in the 2019 Canadian National Championships. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mr. J.T. Horsefall! JT, welcome to Rolling Thunder. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here. All right, man. Well, you were on our short list, and we're so happy that you could come on. And when we saw that you had played in the Canadian Nats, Luke and I did a little high five. So we're just going to jump right into it because we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight. We've been talking a lot about recently the evolving meta and how things come around and come back again. And we thought you would be an excellent guest to kind of help flesh this idea out because you came into the game really early on, right? Yeah, I think shortly after UXM. So there was AVX and UXM was out and I was around before the first D&D set, before the first DC set. Okay, cool. And, and how did you get into the game? Honestly, I, you know, I was just hanging out with a buddy of mine, Randy, who some people might know. Mm-hmm. And we started talking comics because he was wearing an Avengers t-shirt and he said, <laughs> you ought to check out this game I play. And there it was. And that was just a couple months before... 2015 Canadian Nationals, I think. Really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you kind of hopped into it body and soul, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I have a tendency to uh, to dive deep into whatever is catching my fancy at the time. And, and were you a comic fan, obviously, before all this? Uh, a little bit, yeah. You know, not enough to know all the artists and all the authors, just enough to know a few. Right. And read way more Marvel than I did DC growing mm-hmm. up and still do. Not for any particular reason. That's just what I've come accustomed to. Out of curiosity, what were your favorites growing up? Iron Man is uh, and always will be my favorite. And your favorite Iron Man villain? Gotta ask that one. You know, there's a lot of good ones. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you this. My NDA may be expired, but I don't want to get anyone in trouble. When I requested uh, to add a character to the game, right. there was Ricochet right. and all Iron Man characters. So right. let's just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. What were your first competitive events like? And anything you learned from that? And any advice for new people who might be just joining the competitive scene at this point? My first competitive event was 2015 Canadian Nationals. Wow. <laughs> baptism so, by fire, man. <laughs> yeah, definitely baptism by fire. And, you know, Randy and Dave had just gone to U.S. Nationals a couple months before, or six weeks before or something. Right. And so he's trying to train me, trying to teach me, and he is just stomping me left and right with everything. I, you know, I'm playing in the team i'm gonna play really period. wow and he was just crushing <laughs> like he came over and we played you know 13 games and and he won 14 like i just <laughs> there was no i i just could not i couldn't beat him right and honestly it's that i just wasn't seeing the whole picture and it wasn't until i sat down in swiss that something clicked so it was day of that it came together and and, and made sense. Oh, that's awesome! And, and so it was it was a piloting thing. It was absolutely a piloting thing. I was I was making all kinds of mistakes. So you know, this is back in the days of Heavy Professor X, mm-hmm. the original. And so you would have all your sidekicks every turn, and I would just spend everything on my turn and have nothing left over. Oh yeah, uh, for right. the inactive turn, right? Right. And that was something simple. I wasn't even buying stuff. I was just using all my energy, using all my bolts to ping Jade Giant and knock stuff out. <laughs> but I was doing it on the wrong turn. So. Right. For those of you who haven't played Golden a lot or haven't come from that, we've got a couple of links, and I'll put them in the show notes for like how to use PXG and some of the Golden stuff. But that's interesting. So Randy gave you some good 
good rocky rocky tips <laughs> as you went up there. <laughs> yeah. And can you remind us of the team? And I will also throw a link into the show notes at Lucan. Rollandthunder.xyz forward slash two oh three for season two, episode three. That's no apostrophe, no G. <laughs> right, fair enough. So JD, can you <laughs> can you uh, refresh my memory about the team? I, I'm I'm pretty sure I know what it is, but I just want to make sure. Yeah, so you know, obviously I had Professor X because everybody was using Professor X. Ninety percent of people were using Professor right. X. Serena, because as an Avenger and the ability to just do direct damage, that was necessary. Right. Jade Giant, because Green Goliath was everywhere. Right. So Jade Giant is the Hulk that when he takes damage, you knock out one opposing character. Awesome counter, right? Yeah. Yeah. Real strong. And then Patch. Patch was the old rare Nick Fury that when your unblocked Avengers dealt damage, they dealt double damage. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the original Iceman to turn all your sidekicks to bolts. Yep. Slifer for ping. Polymorph for the action so that you could field a sidekick by Jade Giant, get him in on that level one face if you had yeah. to buy them and roll them you could spin them down and then invulnerability which is an old mm -hmm. basic action that had a bolt pump yep so you could turn all your sidekicks into bolts and use the slifer global to ping jade giant and then use the invulnerability global to pump up your avengers that were going to attack for double damage i don't remember what else i might have had on there Man, that's been a long time. Yeah. But that was pretty much the show. Those pieces just did everything you needed them to. And what was your basic buy order and what was your idea of winning with that team? So bought Serena turn one and then Professor X as much as you can. <laughs> Even if it meant, you know, on turn three, drawing only three dice. Right. You know, you're happy to lose a life and gain that energy. So Serena turn one, Polymorph turn two. Jade Giant, turn three, polymorph them in, and then you've got board control. Right. And then pick up Patch and just wait till you got lethal and then, then attack. Did you need to do anything as a board wipe, or what was your idea in terms of just getting enough damage through? I I used Jade Giant because <laughs> even on his lowest level, he was six attack, I think. Right. And so that meant if I could get the board clear, he was going to do 12 with Patch. Yeah. So Serena is uh, lowest attack is two, and she's going to deal two when she attacks because there won't be any characters to spin down. Right. So she's good for six. <laughs> right. So I only had to pump one of them one time. So that meant that if I either had a Fury to do two damage, I think on level three, he's a two five. Right. That was lethal. So I could spend all my bolts just knocking stuff out. Or, you know, just pick up another Serena and push through that way. Keep pushing, right. Well, it sounds, it sounds mean. And how did it go on the day? Well, uh, on the day, I think I went through Swiss with one loss. Sweated out a, a top eight match. You know, there was Jinzos and Novas, right. uh, formerly Weapon 10s. There was all kinds of good stuff. <laughs> right. There were Gobbies. It was, it was incredible. But I sweated out the top eight match, and then in the top four, it just hit me like, wait a minute, I think the math works out that if my opponent doesn't have anything in the field at the end of his turn two, when I go on turn three, mm -hmm. if, if I buy in a different order, if I buy Serena and PXG, and then by patch and PXG. If there's nothing in the field, I can actually just pump Serena up enough, and she's enough for lethal. Wow, interesting. Okay, cool. And so I pulled that off and just had <laughs> just had the poor guy on tilt. Oh, I bet, I bet, poor guy. Because uh, he looked down, and he's like, I didn't even get three turns. What yeah. do I do? How do I beat this? That's one of those ones that just surprises you. If you do the math, and you're like, wow, this actually works. So you just use the bolt bump to, to get her up there? Yeah, the math works out that as long as you had 
all of your sidekicks and Patch and Serena, even if you had to pay to field them, yeah. you were going to have enough flexibility to pump all the way up and do 20. There you go, because of that Iceman, you know, so mean. And also yeah. you were in the day when you, even going first, you rolled four dice. So that gave you a little bit more flexibility yeah, was, as well. It was different back then. Yeah, yeah. Well, Polymorph used to be a lot more versatile because you could blue eyes get that turn one easily because you also have four dice on your first turn and still have energy left pxg so that on turn three you can get your hulk out yeah you want to talk to us a little bit about polymorph because you were another one of the players who really used that well we had the great pleasure of talking to david walsh recently and and he had talked a lot about polymorph i'd love to get your thoughts on it and especially your thoughts about how it might have been stronger in the pxg days well I'm not convinced that it was necessarily stronger in the PXG days, except that you just had more energy to, to play with. So on mm-hmm. the turn that you roll it, you, you can also buy a six cost. But now with the globals and everything else, the clay faces, the, you know, there's so much manipulation you can do now yep. that really the meta is bonkers um, because <laughs> of it. So I'm playing lots and lots of catch up to, to all the new stuff that's out there. So. But Polymorph is great, not not just offensively, mm-hmm. the way that I typically used it, but if you got something in the field that you just need to get rid of, or one fielded effect in somebody else's used pile you don't want to see, you can bring it in. So I remember polymorphing in Gobby. Yeah. And then, you know, they would attack with it and block with a sidekick. Right. You know, I just remember someone seeing that and going, wait a minute, what are you doing to my dice? <laughs> so great. And the current meta, like, nothing's more satisfying than doing that to a rare blob, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, it was just, it was so versatile. Yep. And, you know, just having an action die float around and you could use for so many things just give you more options sure and all kinds of tricks in the attack step as well yeah, you know? yeah. here i'm attacking with the sidekick I'll let it go. <laughs> well that's great so right off the bat you took the belt home right from that yeah that's that's really impressive so speaking of canadian nationals you recently returned to the game after taking some time off and competed in 2019 and you finished top four what was that like and how did you come upon your awesome team and like tell us about how you ran it Oh, uh, man, I, it was <laughs> coming in top four was ridiculous because I had no business in the top four <laughs> with the goofball stuff that I ran. The scene in, in Canada, the players, they're just as tremendous as they've always been. And I don't want to name names because I'll leave people out. But everybody that day was awesome. It was a lot, a lot of fun. I knew that I didn't really want to play hard on the meta because I didn't know what those teams looked like. Then I knew that if I ran one of them, I would be running a suboptimal build. Right. My brewing has always been more geared towards a one-turn combo, real glass cannon type stuff, or just something that nobody sees coming and, and has the potential to frustrate. Right. So I ran just a, a simple villain's win condition with Black Canary and Danger Room. Mm, close to Lucan's heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to run Shriek. I knew I didn't want to run Shriek just because everybody runs Shriek. And that's good a man, game that, man. I, I mean, look, it's a great card and it should be run on almost every team. I just knew that I didn't want to. I, I, I wanted people to look at my team and say, where's Shriek? Right. So I ran the Parasite that, can steal an ability for a turn. And then I ran something that no one can run anymore because apparently it wasn't <laughs> meant to, to work that way. I ran the Poison Ivy Global with Madam Web that allows you to put a die on her card and then the Poison Ivy Global to remove it. Yeah, yeah. it's the uncommon, uncommon Madam, Madam Web. Not the rare. Important <laughs> distinction. I'm the Sky Lucan here. 
Madam Web, Cassandra Web, The Uncommon, Five Cost Fist, Spider Friends Affiliation. When Madam Web attacks, move target opposing character die to her character card until the end of turn. If you could just refresh our memory about that Poison Ivy Global, because I think a lot of people have seen it, but they haven't really, really looked at it. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it's pay two masks, mm-hmm. and you can remove a die from a card from the game. From the game. As long as it's not the last die on the card. Right. So mean. So as long great, as okay. I didn't buy all of my <laughs> Madam Webs, any die I put on that card would never be the last one. That's great. So the idea was field Madam Web, take the die, then pay the Ivy Global and get it out of there, right? Yeah. <laughs> really yeah. clever. I love it. And we knew in advance, I mean, that ruling was was done in advance. And so anyone who, who saw the Facebook event for Canadian Nationals knew that that was a possibility. Right. And I, I was obviously not the only one to think of that because I didn't ask that question. Somebody Ooh, else asked that question. And, and was it the question that was asked that spurred your creative juices or you had, were you already kind of lurking on that yourself? Um, it's something that had been in my mind when that global first came out mm-hmm. and I thought there's no way to actually make it work. And then when I saw that the question was asked, I was like, well, somebody thinks they can work. <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe there is a way to make it work. I'll tell you, right. I tried I tried all day to make it work a lot more than it did. Right. <laughs> um, did you experiment with like a cheap mask and, and clay face? It seems like it almost cries out for something like that, but that's two cards on your team, right? Yeah, it does. It really, really needs that. There were a couple things that I probably could have or should have changed. Mm-hmm. Cheap masks would have been definitely one of those things. I fought for masks decent portion of the day right but that's that you know it didn't matter that i didn't have masks i wasn't going to beat Laurier no matter what I did. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> but i saw the game you really put up a great fight it was fun to watch well, you know that combo it's not fair by any stretch of the imagination and if you see it coming like Laurier did mm-hmm. then you can play around it but right there was at least one game when I removed all of my opponent's Icemen from the game. Wow. Wow, that's Because they great. bought them all, and I took them all. Right. And a lot of times people don't think, like, if you have a collector or something, you usually don't bring more than one or two. So, you yeah. know. The comparison was made at Worlds between the Canadians and the White Walkers because they come from the north, and when they go south, they just destroy everybody. <laughs> they end up getting, like, four out of four top four places at Worlds, I think, or three of four at the very least. <laughs> like, they good show let me ask you this in terms of just structurally. This team is one of those great teams that feels like, aha, surprise team, you know, that tears it up in Swiss. And then people are kind of aware of some of the hijinks it has and has a harder time in the top cuts. Did you find that to be part of the case that once the cat was out of the bag, that it was a little harder to... Uh, no, I did not. I found that the people I played in Canada were going to come at you hard and come mm-hmm. at you fast and just wreck face all day. <laughs> I lost my first match of the day. I think I won two and then I tied one to sneak in. Got it. And then in the top eight was a rematch against that loss. And that was a tough, tough game. So I will name names here. I believe that was against Jocelyn. Yeah. It was just just an outstanding shout out to jocelyn here (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was that that was brutal so uh, very very close and skin of my teeth kind of right sneaking by well that's awesome so then you play top four against laurier and he he got you with his he melted my face uh yeah well the storm melted my face right Uh, yeah that's that storm with that energy field the way it was it was really oppressive right i think even with energy field the way it is now it's that storm is 
so good. That's my favorite yeah. die removal in the game just because it's like, yeah, re-roll it. Yeah, re-roll it. Yeah, re-roll it. Yeah, <laughs> re-roll it again. Like, just keep going until it's out. It doesn't matter. Right. Uh, and with the way you can make masks now, go for it. Tell us about what your buy order. What was your general game plan with that team? Because you kind of had to do two things. You had to do some controlling and then turn into getting your big hit with Black Canary and and the Cree Captain. If I knew what the buy order for that team should have been, (laughs) I probably wouldn't have taken it. I I was guessing the whole way through. Great. Uh, You know, I mean, with the way things are now, I... You can go with the plan, and and I kind of did. Uh, you know, the Creed Captain's going to get biggest, the fastest. Right. The Danger Room doesn't do me. A Hill of Beans worth a good until I'm there. Right. And so I never tried to buy it early. I was always more bodies early. And if I had been paying attention, I probably would have put that spider in the field sooner mm-hmm. virtually every game. Yeah, you. Uh, not a lot of people run that card, but it's a good card. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, it's just, it's vicious struggle and legs. So when you take damage, it reflects the damage and it also will cancel any previously played action. Right. Now that's not as specifically useful right now. Well, Green Devil Mask, right? It, that's that's the one yeah. that it's useful for and Green Devil Mask, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's the big reason you chose Spider over Bishop. I chose Spider over Bishop to speed the game up. Mm-hmm. Bishop doesn't speed the game up. He just slows your opponent down. I was willing to take all the damage and figure that I, I'll just do the math and I'll, I'll find a way to make it work. That, that's it. a good and, choice. And I was counting on going wide and I figured, okay, if I go wide... I'll, I'll be okay. So that's that's really the reason, because I, I, I'm willing to speed the game up more than anything else. So you mentioned that, you know, your, your style of play or your archetype is to make this glass cannon, one-turn wonder teams, you know? And a couple of them spring to mind. Yeah, I always think of you and that Phoenix Force team and the and the Wolverine best there, best is. there is team. Can you talk to us about how you came upon that, your realization that that was what you like to do, or... Yeah, I, I mean, I think I've always, you know, boil it down simplest terms. You know, if you're playing card games, turn the card sideways. If you're playing dice games, swing, right. you know, push them forward. <laughs> Let's see what happens. That's the easiest and simplest and boiling it down to the least common denominator, right? Right. When it comes down to it, this is a game about dice and I'm going to attack and you can choose how to block. And so I always really enjoyed ways of figuring out how can I attack for 20 and prevent my opponent from blocking? So one way was to clear the field, right? So that's the Jade Giant, Green Goliath types. Mm -hmm. One one way was Bard. I'll just attack for 70. (laughs) (laughs) See if you can stop me. (laughs) See if you can stop that. Right. You know, with, with the Phoenix Fastball, you know, I brought Ping to just clear stuff out. And I think I probably had the Doom Caliber Knight Fiendish Fighter Global to prevent you from pulling it back, distraction or blink transmutation or whatever at the time. When you ran that Phoenix Fastball team, was there an unblockable or was your idea just to clear the field and then swing? I can't remember what, what exactly it, it was wasn't unblockable. Team. So it was formerly Weapon 10. So right. when you attack alone, you're going to get the, the buff. And I ran the Colossus Global, So, mm-hmm. and I ran the Infiltrate basic action die. So Infiltrate gives a character an affiliation of your choice. Right. So I gave him Phoenix Force affiliation. And then the right. Colossus Global <laughs> was like, pay two fists, double the attack and defense of one right. of your... So when he attacks alone, he gets plus four, yeah. plus four, right? And then and then when you double it, so whatever he was is doubled, <laughs> plus eight, plus eight. So it was so just... 
it was silly. It was it, no matter what it was, it was always going to be silly. Right. You know what I love about that team too is like if you really stopped and looked at it, you could realize you probably brought all the tools for the opponent to do almost the same thing to you. No, 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 not probably. They did you absolutely right? brought all the tools. <laughs> did anybody ever figure that out while you were playing them? I, I'm trying to remember if Jimmy did or not. <laughs> right. or maybe he figured it out. Like I had people buy up the infiltrate, right. but no one, no one pulled it off against me. Now, when I played against Jimmy, I'm speaking James O'Brien, Jimmy O'Brien, sure, was kids. We got to play a game between events that day, and it was greatest loss of my life. I mean, that was <laughs> that was thrilling, and you know, he had he had stuff I'd never seen before. You know, at the time we were only dreaming of it, but he had black basic action yeah. dice. Yeah, I mean, and it was just so cool to see and look across from. He had the Alex Ross art stuff, and yeah. it was just it was incredible. <laughs> but he had built a wasp build that gets pumped every time you use a global. Right. And he, he beat me. He, he, he <laughs> yeah. beat me. Jimmy's more than just a manager. He knows how to play this game for oh, sure. Oh, he knows his game. He yeah. knows the game well. <laughs> That's awesome. I brought all those globals for him to use, too. So. <laughs> and he's got the super cool basic action dice. Well, I recommend any, if, if there's any combo players out there, I'll, I'll throw a link into the show notes for, for the team because it's a really fun, fun team to play. And those Phoenix Force globals are, are super mean. <laughs> The other, the other one that best there is one, you know, that didn't care as much about getting rid of blockers. It was just always going to have more attack and overcrush, right? right. That was fun because you, you dealt a little bit of damage with Red Dragon Global going for back for seconds and anger issues. <laughs> and then on turn three, you would buy the best there is, use back for seconds to bring him in at level three, use anger issues, and then he would double damage. Right. So. Now, a lot of people don't use back for seconds anymore, so I'm going to throw a link into the show notes. But basically, it only works with underdog, and it puts things in the field at level three. So, yeah. And you yeah. were using, and to I, get underdog, you were using what, White Tiger to make sure that that White was White Tiger case. Global to bring something in. And, you know, fortunately for me, so <laughs> it, the best there is only deals double damage to things that block them. Right. So I needed something that would block, so I brought a force block global. So, <laughs> yes, you're putting something in the field. Yes, it has to block. And, yeah. by the way, thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about getting two for one there, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. Great. So you've characterized yourself as, as a brewer in the past, and you've built and made some really cool teams. But when you build a team, do you generally work backwards from a recognition of your style and play? And if so, what are the abilities and the cards that you look for? It's always about how are you going to win, right? And there's so many different ways to win now. You just got to pick one of them and go with it. And so for me, let's just take Canadian Nationals this year. I, I knew that I wanted to run Black Canary and Danger Room. So that meant that the Cree captain was an obvious pick just because it's going to get big every time I use danger. Right. And so, okay, that's how I'm going to win. Now, what do I do now? What, what's next? And so you just fill in pieces and you play games and say, hey, I'm never buying this. Let me look for something else to put in that slaughter. Boy, I am getting owned by something. How do I stop that thing? <laughs> right. And so it's just kind of about reps. And I am I'm a, just about the worst to talk to about that because most of my <laughs> reps are mental. And if you have a blind spot, boy, are you in for a surprise. But um, start with how do you want to win the game? What do you want to use? I mean, if it's if it's style-based, cool. If it's for style points, cool. If it's, you know, this is the fastest, this is the best, this whatever it is. Pick the way to win and then build around it. Awesome. So really quickly, just curious about the Black Canary. How did you prevent people from using the Danger Room Global to ping out your own Black Canary before your attack step? I didn't. 
I, I didn't. The only way that you can do it and not get her pinged out is if you get them both the same turn and you play Danger Room during your main step and then feel Black Canary. So she's not a villain. I mean, it, it didn't come up. There were games that I bought two Black Canaries because I couldn't right. get one to roll. But it's always, if you don't get them on the same turn, it's definitely a concern. Interesting. So, you know, you talked about playing these glass cannon, super aggro teams. But one of the things I've really always admired about you as a pilot is there were times where I've seen you switch into going into a control or playing control or playing mid-range or doing other things. And how important do you think it is to branch out and experiment with other styles of play? I think if you look at the two pilots who made the final table at Worlds, you see exactly how important it is. Mm -hmm. Because both of those players, Ben and Laurier, do this constantly constantly they change what they're playing constantly and they they can both play anything under the sun and they can play it better than just about anyone who will ever play this game so i think the more you build your skills and expand your abilities to play anything i mean that's honestly that's the only reason that i've had any success that i've had is because i would just turn cards sideways or push dice forward or you know if if, if i didn't learn anything else that's what i would have done right and I never played a team that was just that. Everything I've ever played, including those glass cannons, needed other stuff around it. Needed either a way to control blockers or manipulate other dice or actions or something. Yep, and so you just you have to have to have multifacets. Have to. It's also super useful when facing people who run the things you hate to see. <laughs> And I mean, to be honest, like, don't you just feel more in control when you have an idea what someone else is going to do? Oh, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. That's why so many times I tried to bring stuff that I didn't think other people expected to see because, oh, now what's that? You know, I think back to the WKO in Chicago that I went to and maybe I think it was Swiss. I sat down across from Craig Hubner mm-hmm. and the first thing he bought was my nefarious broadcast. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, I, I don't know. I'm just saying, you know, the way Craig Huber could. And uh, he put on a clinic on how to use it. Yeah. So he knew exactly what he used. Yeah. And I was like, well, that I was hoping for that. And uh, <laughs> I, you know, lost that opportunity. So. Yeah, we were talking to David Walsh recently, and he brought up whenever an opponent asks you to read one of your cards, like, what does that do? That's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You mentioned a little earlier about you doing mental reps, and when we were talking about playtesting and things, you know, a lot of people have talked about you doing mental reps. How does that actually work in your mind? I mean, Lucan and I used to play a lot of chess. And so we would sit down and we would literally over a burrito, we would start playing a game and see how many moves we could hold in our head, just visualizing the board. Yeah. How, uh, how does it work for you when you do mental reps with Dice Masters? I just never wanted a role to surprise me. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to guess what to do in a scenario. No, I did a lot. I had to guess a lot because there are so many things you just don't consider. Right. But I always wanted to have thought through potential outcomes and say, what do I do in that scenario? And so for me, it was a lot less about necessarily game state or I, I wasn't I wasn't playing through entire games in my head. I'm not sure that I have nearly the mental capacity for that. But I would frequently say, okay, if I'm way behind in board state and I roll a bunch of bolts, what do I do? Is the best thing to ping off what's threatening me? Is the best thing 
to buy another asset is the best thing to wait. And usually in that scenario, you know, in the old days, wait until the inactive turn, then ping stuff off before the attack step. Right? Mm-hmm. That was a lesson I learned the hard way, being smoked by Randy, I think I said. So those are the kind of things that I would do mental reps for. What do you do when you just roll garbage and you're behind? <laughs> or when you're counting lethal, you know, make sure you're counting it twice. Make sure that, you know, you got your ducks in a row. That cost me miscounting a lethal cost me big in WKO, I think in West Virginia. So mm-hmm. never afraid of mistakes, but hopefully not making the same one twice and hopefully preparing for as many of them as possible. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit because mistakes I think are the sneaky unsung hero in the, in the land of improvement. You, you talked about just embracing your mistakes. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more perhaps? Yeah. So this mistake in particular, we were top four maybe of the WKO was barred. I think I was playing the best there is. And I was so concerned about having a blocker to deal double damage and win mm-hmm. that I spent both of my fists to force both of the opposing sidekicks to block mm-hmm. because my opponent had a question mark. And I was so worried they would ping out the one that I forced to block. Right. Or not ping out, blue eyes. Blue eyes, yeah. That uh, didn't pay any attention to the fact that they just blinked it back. <laughs> you know, right. I think right. what I should have done is spend one of those fists to force a block. If they block, fine. If they don't, fine. I should have spent the other fist on Doom Caliber. Right. right? But, I, you know, I, I got lost in the moment. I got mm-hmm. lost and tunnel visioned on something. And I spent all the energy I had. And the next turn... She walks across two sidekicks, and I don't have two blockers. Right. Done. Uh. So, you know, no matter what you think you know, like, you always got to watch for your blind spots. It's so easy to get tunnel vision on stuff. For sure. um, That's probably my biggest weakness is tunnel vision. Interesting. Yeah. I I guess it'll be my little roll and blunder segment here. I'm going to pretend I'm a guest. I was it was just this past worlds. So I was playing Rob from Chris and Rob's game room, and I was so tunnel visioned on. I was on stream, and I was so tunnel visioned on getting the staff to come around so that I could clear his board. There's lethal on the table, and I just it completely blew by me. And like DM Armada and Ross tried so hard to like pretend that I wasn't missing lethal, although they like both <laughs> definitely knew that I was missing lethal. And I was like, in hindsight, I'm like, why did I do that? But I'll tell you, I'm next time we get on stream. I don't think I'm going to get tunnel visioned again after that. Yeah, so most so you, shameful. So you made the mistake, and you said you realized that tunnel vision might have been your weakness. Was there anything that you did consciously after that to improve that aspect of your play? Uh, you know, for a while, I probably looked at my opponent's energy and said, "All right, all of the globals. Which ones can they use? <laughs> right. Read them all again." Right. You know, but you know, certain point there's diminishing returns on that, and you just you just got to play the game. Mm-hmm. You know, when you've done enough reps and you know your team well enough, then you know you got to trust that. Yeah. Well, one of the things I liked, you know, when you and Dave were doing the attack zone, I always liked how you guys had made conscious efforts to improve as players. Were there any, you know, a handful of those that you felt were most effective in terms of being action steps that other people could replicate? When Randy and I were playing a lot, we would trade teams. Ah. And my goal was to always have the better winning percentage with both teams. Yeah. And I, we didn't, I didn't keep, you know, strong stats. But if I had a good feel that, and I, I 
Randy's tremendous. So I, I, I don't know that I ever really had a good feel that I could win more with both teams, <laughs> but, but that was right. the goal, right? So you, you set the goal and you, and you play so that you have that kind of understanding and, and feel like you have that kind of control. Now it's a dice game. So right. the control you have, but the point is that was the goal I set and that's what I worked towards. And I don't know that, you know, you set, goals for win rates or that you set goals for dice rolls or you set goals, but you set goals for understanding and you set goals for, I need to have a better feel for the buy order for this team so that I, I understand it more. And I know when to pivot and, and flex. I know when to, to push and swing. And I know when I have control and I know when I need to get it back. But I, I, I never said no to answering what was in my bag, even when, you know, even before that change or whatever, whatever it is now, I never, I always told people, you know, someone asked, yeah, this is what I got. I pull them all, all the dice out and show them, but I never asked. I would never ask. I would tell people what's in their bag. You know, as I'm thinking it through, I'd say, okay, you got three sidekicks, dwarf wizard and polymorph. And they'd look in their bag and they'd see three sidekicks, dwarf wizard and polymorph. <laughs> and that was, that was so intimidating to some people. And I'm like, I, all I did was look and count and, and, and do the math. Right. And I feel like when you're working through stuff, when you're trying to get better, when you hold as much in your head as you can comfortably, but never be afraid to, to double check that and rethink it. And, you know, cause that's probably one of the reasons that blind spots were my weakness. Right. But I always felt like if I knew what was where, then I had a better chance of understanding where to go next. Sure. Yeah, I, I know that back in the day, everybody knew you as the guy who would get inside your head and like <laughs> all had all the mind games and all the Bring mind 19 tricks. dice instead of 20. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking about getting into your head, let's talk about your old-fashioned alter ego, Count Von Homash. Where did the count come from, and what what was that all about in the day? So my name is Joseph Thomas Horsfall II. I'm named after my grandfather. Uh And so I used the username J Thomas H2. So I just used my middle name and first and last initial. Got it. But people read it JT Homash, (laughs) which is my fault. Okay? That's my fault. So that's, that's where it came from. That's awesome. Okay. And RJ just ran with it. I don't remember who added Count Vaughn. It might have been him. And I'm pretty sure RJ pitched it like, we should do, we should do like bits. And I was right. like, bits? And he's like, I'm, I'm a radio guy. We right. should do bits. <laughs> I was like, okay. And so we did. And it was, it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Well, well, your alter ego created an awesome tool that people have used for a long time now to help assess the value of a die stats. It's referred to as the Homash value. Can you explain how you calculated this value, why you came up with it to begin with, and why it's still useful to players today? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, you just take average stats divided by the average cost of those stats. So I always averaged the attack and defense separately mm-hmm. so that I would know if a die was more beneficial aggressively or more beneficial defensively. And then you divide that by the purchase cost plus the average fielding cost, and that gave you some relative ratio. So did you have two values, actually, a, a homage value for attack and a homage value for D, or was um, it combined? No, I always did them separate. So math is something that was you know usually pretty easy for me, but mm-hmm. when there were dice that you know had kind of high variability across the, like Groot has high variability right. across his levels. 
And so the formula breaks down when the distribution of those stats is not relatively normal for right. levels one, two, and three. And so I always kind of wanted to have a better idea of relative value of, say, Dwarf Wizard versus Gnome Ranger. Mm-hmm. Gnome Ranger, I think, is sort of aggressively statted. I don't, I don't totally recall. Yeah. But, you, you know, you kind of wanted to be able to suss some of that out and, and have an idea. Now, frankly, I think way too much is put into this because this is just the simplest ROI you can find. I mean, that's all you're really calculating. What What is my return on the investment? Do I get good attack stats? Do I get good defensive stats? Do I get a good mix? Or do I get some abject garbage? I don't I don't know. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's all I was trying to find out. And you never, there's one ability in the game that I think you can quantify with this particular formula. And that is Elf Thief. And how so? Well, Elf Thief is going to field for free, right. but it's really going to field for negative one. Right. Because I'm going to get to steal an energy. Right. Yeah. Right. That, so that's the only ability I've ever thought of that you could sort of quantify mm-hmm. with this. Because when you take the purchase cost plus the average fielding cost, it's really minus because right. I'm, I'm gaining an energy. And so, you know, the relative ratio value there is, is something like four to one. Boy, yeah, what a great dive. And And I always <laughs> thought that anything, I always thought anything approaching two was of good value. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure that abilities the way they are i mean when you're teaching the game this is good so that people then understand like yes there's actually some value here or no this is understated and, and overcosted, and no matter if it's my favorite character or not it's never going to benefit me the way i think it needs to but beyond that boy abilities are everything usefulness is everything yeah because you can have a, a great stat of die and if you can't push them home it's not helping you that much right exactly the one case I think where literally just the efficiency of the die stats makes up for any lack of ability is morphing jar. That is oh. such an unbalanced <laughs> idea. <For> sure. <laughs> Anything one cost is going to be tremendous. So let's reiterate the formula again real quick, just so that people who want to try this at home, how, how exactly would one go about doing this? So I would add up the three attack stats mm-hmm. and divide by three. Got it. That gives me average attack. Got it. Then I would add up the three defensive stats and divide by three. Mm-hmm. It gives me average defense. Yep. And when you put those two numbers together, you have total average stats. Got it. Typically, I would just add those two together. Mm-hmm. Then you divide by, put the next two operations together. Okay. So you divide by the purchase cost plus the fielding costs added together divided by three. So that gives you average fielding cost. So mm-hmm. in the case of, let's say Hulk, I'm, I'm going AVX Hulk. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go Green Goliath. Purchase cost is six. Fielding costs go one, two, three. Yep. So my denominator in this thing is eight mm-hmm. because it's purchase cost plus average fielding. Yep. So one plus two plus three is six divided by three is two. So it's six plus two. Yep. And I don't totally recall the stats, although I think they go something like six five, seven seven, eight eight, or something, something along like those that, lines. Yeah. So roughly, well, your average attack is seven. Yep. Your average defense is like six and two thirds. So your total average is roughly fourteen, uh, thirteen and two thirds, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you're approaching two because two would be sixteen divided by eight. Yep. And so you get you know. Almost 14, so you're, you're getting there. You're not quite there, but you're getting there. Yeah. And, and I always felt like Hulk was always value. Like, it was always a big body. Never felt like, man, why did I buy this guy? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, so that's just a way to quantify your ROI. 
That's awesome. So, so also we will have the formula in the show notes, and we will also have a calculator program for those of you with TI eighty fours or but, better. I mean, you know, in general, I think WizKids did a pretty good deal with like you look at mm-hmm. big stuff like Kingpin. Kingpin was always going to be a good value. You yeah. look at big stuff. I mean, you know, your big costed dice that had good stats were typically going to be good. This just kind of gave you a framework with you know, which one is a little bit better. Right. And the ones that jump out, like the beholder who's over two, you know, approaching yeah. five or something. It's like, yeah, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> He's as good as I thought he was. Right. Well, it was, it was good at seven costs and then they made him four. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Like Dr. Strange coming out again. I think. Yeah. For four. Oh, oh my goodness. Right. Right. So I should ask now, did you have a background in other types of games before you came to dice masters? And, and, and was that useful as a transition? If so, um, you know, I played, I played chess when I was younger mm-hmm. in school. I played a lot of board games in college and, and after college. I think the more diverse ways that you practice thinking, the better. I mean, that goes for hobbies and professions alike, let alone, you know, personal interactions and, you know, relationships. So I think just being able to see the board in different ways and see how, how the game might progress how board state might progress and that helps you identify oh man I, do i need to play a little tighter or do i need to swing mm-hmm. away and which of those gives me the advantage so i don't know that there's anything specific like i was never a big you know like magic the gathering player which uh you know dice master's got a lot of comparison at least when i was coming into it you know have you played magic you'll love this that that was a, a I heard that a lot. I heard other players say that a lot. And so that that wasn't like a thing for me. I never played any other collectible game besides this one. Interesting. Cool. Well, one of the things I was interested in, we talked to Jimmy recently about sort of the ebb and flow of collectible card games and how a meta will kind of, you'll start to notice repeating patterns and play styles and it'll be different, but the flavors will be reminiscent of things in the past. And you've been around long enough now to witness and evaluate some of these overall patterns and shifting strengths and weaknesses in the meta, you know, like the rise and fall of different archetypes and things. You know, with the introduction of new cards and the removal of old ones with rotation and things, has there been times where the evolution of the meta and the changing meta has helped you or hurt you as a player? You know, and if so, were you conscious of it at the time? Did you try to make adjustments? I don't think I've ever been conscious of, of much in this game. I think, I, you know, <laughs> I, I liked playing a lot. I played as much as I could. I think the changing meta absolutely helps players mm-hmm. because it, it forces players to get better at more than one thing. Yeah, It forces players to read and understand cards that they wouldn't otherwise. And so, you know, for that reason, like, I think the changing meta absolutely helped me start to finish whenever finish may be right i think new abilities new ways of thinking about things you know what's this new ability coming out now the rush where <laughs> you know <laughs> you're just gonna draw more dice like yeah now now how do you do bag management <laughs> you know like this is whiz kid saying figure this one out like, I, I, i'm excited for it it looks bananas i don't know how, i don't know how you know where i'm gonna figure that out but I absolutely think that any changing meta, all of the new abilities, you know, new card interactions, new keywords, I think all of that ultimately helps players get better if they put in the time to learn it and understand it. In general, is there anything that players should really keep their eye out for when new cards are released or old ones get cycled? I think when old ones get cycled is the toughest because I think when new ones come out, like you just got to play with them. 
just do the thing that you're going to do anyway, and that's play the game. <laughs> right, right. I mean, when old ones go out, they usually announce it at least three months or so before the next like big nationals or world event. So you just like stop playing with the old cards as soon as they announce them. Like, but, but you may find there's a hole. Like I remember there's a period of time where it was like, wow, you know what? We're losing the things that stop when fielded. You know, when Constantine went away. Yeah. Suddenly, all those when fielded cards got a lot more powerful, right? So sometimes I feel like, okay, if you can spot where are going to be the big traps that suddenly fall out from under you. That's why I think it's harder because not only are you losing counters to stuff, but mm-hmm. you'll bring counters to things you don't need counters. Like, right. you know, right. right? So, so why am I wasting this slot on my team for X, Y, or Z? Right. And you no longer need to. And, yeah, yeah. and I think that's the thing that people who are genuinely master brewers that, you know, the, the folks that are posting, you know, the weekly what did you play and the folks that are playing in the weekly I serene it like the more you play and i i didn't say this at all when i started playing the game i wanted everything to always stay golden i wanted to have it all and you know look at that puzzle for forever and i have grown from that opinion but the people that play limited in whatever varying formats yep. more consistently naturally will do this part of brewing better they will naturally i mean because it's a skill that they've practiced because yeah, they've played with the cards they've experienced them yeah so when you practice that skill you're going to get better at it there's really no other way to get better at it so legacy leagues are not only just a fun thing they are also useful <laughs> indeed they <Yeah>. are absolutely <laughs> Are there any other skills, speaking of skills and ways of thinking, if there's anything else from other parts of your life that you've been able to incorporate into the game that you feel like, oh, this has given me a leg up, you know, somebody else might not have had that? No. You know, knowing the mechanism of action for ibuprofen has not helped me with this <laughs> at all. <laughs> but it may have helped you after you've had a tough loss, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, knowing the newest beta blocker to come to market is not... <laughs> <laughs> There's no crossover. Um, I think just the biggest thing, is, you know, play the game of fun, right? Like this is one of the best communities out there. Mm-hmm. And people have moved in and out of it, whatever. Right. But when you go to an event like Canadian Nationals, in my case, the World's event recently in Memphis, you know, all the reports from that, all the streaming, like everything was glowing. Play the game to have fun. Enjoy the company of people and make friends. It doesn't matter if you make plastic, if you edit film, if you are a pharmacist or a judge or an attorney or a, a flip hamburgers, cutter. like it, it or yeah. high school, st- like none of that matters. Yep. None of it. And so, you know, the crossover, the, the real life stuff, like be good to people and have <laughs> yep. fun, yep. you know, <laughs> like I think it's, I think it really is that simple. Let's talk about that a little bit because I think that's one of the things that separates this community from a lot of the other Less friendly. Less friendly. There's a couple of ones that, you know, have gotten some bad reputation for just things getting too cutthroat, you know, and, and, and maybe it's, I don't know if we're unique in terms of players, or maybe it's just because the prize pool isn't super, you know, it's you can't make a living off this game, obviously. But, you know, how do we keep this fun, you know, and how do you keep the jovial competitive spirit that we've enjoyed with this game. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it's it's perspective. It's it's maintaining perspective. It's this is a game. Yep. And you know, I've had some losses where I just uh, puts you in a sour mood and I've I've <laughs> behaved poorly and I don't want to sound pretentious enough to say like just be nice to people. I've been mean to people. Like I, 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 this is more self-talk than anything. I just I think when when you keep the right perspective yep. on that, that kind of stuff, it just everything is easier. Everything's yep. better. 
and, and it's better for everyone, not just you, but it is better for you. So you don't have to do it all out of altruism. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, no, it's a good perspective. And, and did you ever find yourself knowing when the season is right? Like there's a season for maybe getting competitive and there's probably a season for playing loose and just having a good time, right? Did, did you ever make a conscious effort to do that? Yeah. <laughs> no, usually when I'm playing the teams I build, I'm playing loose. When right. I play the teams that other people have built, <laughs> I'm playing more competitive. Got it. That's, that's a rough estimation, I think. But I think the, the big events should be competitive. Mm-hmm. Play to win. Go for it. Yep. You know? But the other stuff, or maybe even those, if, if it's more your style, you can play a little loose. You know, I think of Chris Williams, right? Like mm-hmm. he says he almost always plays loose, but you know, this European thing coming up, watch out because he's coming for it. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I, We're going to see who know? the true, true Mr. Six is. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Just embrace it like, yeah. and go in with that whatever plan it is. <laughs> You have a moment to talk piloting here because you're renowned as one of the great pilots of all time in the game. And so what do you think are the skills, tactics, and abilities that make for a good pilot? Any tips for how to hone those abilities? Piloting is knowing your team inside and out. But piloting is also knowing all of the matchups. And so Mm -hmm. it's one thing to pilot your your team because you know it inside and out and just do the the machinations over and over and over. It's another thing to know the matchup and know how to pivot and know – what to do and when. And that's the, the tactical element, right? right? You know, the strategy is I'm putting these 10 cards on my team because these 10 cards give me the best opportunity to win. The tactics are which die to buy when and how to proceed and what, what to do. And so whatever reputation I may have is only parallel to the, the people that have built it and brewed it and, and done the strategy in advance. So you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to, to play with a, a bunch of people who know the game probably better than I do. But if you know your team inside and out, and if you know the matchups inside and out, and you know how to pit, then piloting is just dealing with the roles. Right. Well, thank you for, for talking about that. And it sounds like, you know, you had the good fortune to play with some really great players. Like, I'm sure you know, all those matchups between you and Randy made both of you much better players and much better pilots over time, you know? Yeah, I, I really, I truly have. And I speak about it like it's past tense. It's only past tense because, uh, you know, the work schedule right now and his family's growing. Yeah, boy. And, uh, you know, game nights are getting tougher and tougher to pull together. and. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's really what it boils down. You know, life life has seasons too. So took a little bit of a season off and then had the opportunity to go up to Canada and wanted to dive back in as much as I could with what I knew about the meta <laughs> and and wanted to be a little bit off kilter because I knew that, you know, if I tried to play Iceman or, or the Atom, I was gonna come probably with a subpar build and that you know, that just didn't sound like fun to me. So All right. Well, real quick. Your three favorite teams over the course of your career. What if you had to pick three and take them to a desert island? What would they be? Uh, that poly control that lasted a while, really from spring of 2015 right up to nationals 2016. Mm-hmm. That was my jam, and it became my jam because I think it, we felt like it was just the strongest build. Yeah, Kevin Richter's cloud kill elf thief bard build yeah that was just <laughs> was it demoralizing yeah. to play against yeah boy that's a good team and i would say the last thing that was my, my favorite team to run was the old ring of magnetism wonder girl combo <laughs> and anything else um, a T.O.'s worst nightmare right <laughs> 
because <laughs> I, I played one of the first times I got to play Tony Weakland was at an event in Toledo. And I don't remember if it was like a WKO, if it was, but he came with a vulture build. Mm-hmm. And I had the Millennium Puzzle, Millennium Rod. And then I also had Wonder Girl and, and Ring of Magnetism going on. <laughs> and just like, it was <laughs> so all about controlling. manipulating stuff. Just. <laughs> You know, you, you try and do this. Nope, that's going to your guy. Uh, nope, that's going to this. It was, it was nonsense. It was so much fun. It was crazy. That was a lot of fun. Awesome. 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 Okay, JT, it's that time where we ask our guests to nominate someone they think might be worthy to our mythical Dice Masters Hall of Fame. It could be a great player or someone who's really been of service to the community, whoever you think is worthy. And they have to be retired or semi-retired. That's true. They cannot be still playing today. And they also cannot be David Walsh. (laughs) Okay. Well, Walsh was on the short list for sure. I never... I don't think I ever got to play Walsh. He's he's already been inducted, so that's that's fine. Well, that's that's fair. But I, I'm I, he was on the short list. But you know, honestly, recently I actually had a conversation with Dave Morris, mm-hmm. and uh, and I just got to thinking like Dave was so consistent in the first part of yes. TRP. That was his baby. He launched it. Mm-hmm. But the, the podcasts were just like so consistent. I don't yeah. remember if they were weekly or every other week or whatever. But he was just driven to make sure that people who wanted to listen to podcasts had an opportunity to. Yep. And it did. It never mattered what the subscriber count was. It never mattered what the listener count was. Like he was just methodical about going about creating content. And, you know, you guys are in this now, so you know what that grind is like. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm sure you have an appreciation for what that um, oh, yeah. was like. And, you know, the team changed over time, but Dave was always real consistent. And, you know, as it does to all of us, life happened. You know, he became a father and stepped away from the game. And, you know, but Dave, Dave was always a pleasure to hang out with and talk to and, and talk about the game with. Sure. And, you know, he, he gave me an opportunity to, to participate in some of that. But he, you know, he was just always so consistent. So Dave Morris is my nomination awesome awesome well you know we got the ball rolling and it's it's definitely a sisyphusian task to push it up that hill for every other week or whatever it was you yeah. know so so yeah, I, I think one it's really became good. three right one podcast became three or four yeah that's a it's a tough grind but he he stayed with it for a long time yeah it's hard to think of someone who's done more to promote the game than dave the site and the podcast were tremendous labors of love, and it's not easy to be the face of the franchise, so to speak. Also, let's not forget that Dave was a tremendous player in his own right. Yeah. Off the top of my head, I know he was top eight in the 2015 U.S. National Championships, and I know he won one of those gigantic WKOs in Detroit using Ring Res. Is there anything else you'd like to cover, JT? Well, we have you here. Is there anything else you can want to shout from the rooftop, so to speak? Yeah, uh, you know, when... <laughs> When I started playing the game, there were a few unwritten rules. Oh, yeah. Let's talk unwritten rules. Yeah. Real quick. And one of those was never res on turn one because <laughs> it just screwed up everything yep. from there on out. But when I sat down, I think it was top eight in 2017 Worlds, I sat down across from Michaela and I rezzed turn one and I just <laughs> glared at her. And she was like, what are you, are you throwing this? What's going on? And then, and then the next turn, 
the next turn, I was able to rip Hunter's chalkboard a dark side <laughs> to, to make my sidekick swarm. So I was able to like fix it right away. Right. But that unwritten rule, that was just another way to try and get in someone's head. Whatever the unwritten rules are now, I have no idea. But whatever they are, follow them until you shouldn't. Right. And that's it. Like look for opportunities to not, because when those unwritten rules can be broken, mm-hmm. there's probably a very good reason to break them. That's interesting. That's interesting. Okay, so unwritten rules are great until you find the opportunity to break them, which it can be really surprising and strong and and throw another player into tilt in some cases, right? For sure. Interesting. Well, thank you, JT. I really appreciate you coming on and joining us this evening and, and spending the oh, time. I appreciate the show. I listen I listen every episode. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's always nice to know we're not spitting into the wind, so to speak. Here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Appreciate the opportunity, guys. This uh, is cool. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And uh, I hope to have you on one day in the future. So uh, keep on rolling, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Cheers. Songful. <laughs> JT is such a class act. That was great. For sure. I suppose we should spit out our public service reminder not to bring this combo to your friendly local game store, as they've since ruled on the Poison Ivy Global and nixed the combo. And while we're on that subject, I suppose we should read out that ruling. It was from a question posed by the Angry Viking, which asked, Using Poison Ivy's Global, could I remove a Cerebro supercomputer die on a character card or a die captured with Madam Web, Cassandra Webb? And the response? Great question. Poison Ivy's Global ability can only remove a die that belongs to that card, i.e. player A Spider-Man die from that player's Spider-Man card, if it isn't the last die on that card. The intent is that players can reduce the quantity of opposing dice they'll need to fight, but they won't be able to bring the amount of an opposing die to zero with Poison Ivy's global ability. Poison Ivy couldn't remove Cerebro from a character card or another character die from Cassandra Webb's card, the Dice Masters rules team. So the combo no longer works, but I still think it's something worth really looking at, as it's a great example of something that one of our previous guests, Mr. Paul Kushner, talked about, and that's being on the lookout for ways to figure out how to use an ability in an unintuitive way. In episode 7 from last season, Paul talked about how the great brewers find ways to twist abilities in unexpected ways and how powerful that can be. Now, this particular combo is no longer valid, but I still think it's a great example of that concept. Guns out. Well, what do you say we step down from this soapbox and hit it and quit? Let's hit and quit. Next episode, we're going to get into talking about some of the new upcoming stuff. Until then, slung a fall. Chip amid shiv, gotten will. Well, that's the end of Turn 5, my friends, and it's time for the final clear. We hoped you enjoyed today's show. You can find us at rollinthunder.xyz, without a G or an apostrophe, where you'll discover all the links necessary to listen or subscribe to the show. You can also reach us by email at arge or lucan at rollinthunder.xyz. Our theme music was created by Jesse Weiner. We're in no way affiliated with WizKids, other than we love and celebrate the game of Dice Masters. So keep on rolling, August Narlagajia the Lao. We'll be talking again soon with another awesome guest. So stay tuned. Enough said.